0: You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, a podcast from the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, one of your moderators, and a member of the committee staff. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys you're moderating as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org NatSecurity.
1: And I'm Yvette, another one of your moderators. This podcast will discuss national security issues in the news and provide critical baseline information about the issues for new lawyers and lawyers that have been practicing national security law for years.
2: And I'm Elisa, another one of your moderators. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law today. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at our annual conference in November to hear more about what, what is happening today and what will happen tomorrow on these issues.
0: We will deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law.
2: And super exciting! Yes. If you're a
1: colossal nerd, like some people in this
2: room. What are you saying? Because I played Dungeons and Dragons in high school, I...
1: Holy cat! Yes, you are a nerd. <laughs>
2: All right. During this podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topics at AmericanBar.org Nat security, and in the notes to this podcast.
1: In addition, you can find links to other books, learned treatises, and academic articles on today's topics on our website.
0: At the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at at org or on Twitter at ABA NatSec. We welcome your feedback. Today we'll continue
1: our series on private national security law. We are really excited to welcome to the podcast, Lindsay Rodman! It's wonderful to be with you. So Lindsay, I should actually say welcome back to the ABA because you were a student member of our standing committee way
3: back in the day. I was. It was actually an incredible opportunity to get to learn about national security law at the beginning of my career, even before I was able to start it. So
1: I'm glad I gave you a foundation for all the amazing things that you would go on to do. Let's walk through your background a little bit. Uh, you graduated from Duke with a degree in math. Uh, you earned your,
2: Women in math. How cool is that? Shout Excuse out. Me. Much respect. Thank you. I hope um, my sister's listening to this.
1: <laughs> you earned your master's of public policy in international security policy, and your JD from Harvard. Not bad. You also worked at Arnold and Porter and decided to join the Marine Corps. Semper Fi. Semper Fidelis. While you're on active duty in the Marines, you had a number of very interesting jobs, including defense counsel in Okinawa, operational law attorney at Camp Leatherneck, Afghanistan, and deputy legal counsel in the Office of the Legal Advisor to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, super long business card, much. Wow. Also known as Chairman's Legal for those of us at the Pentagon. You were also placed the National Security Council as a White House Fellow, and you served as Director for Defense Policy and Strategy. You left the White House for the Pentagon to advise both the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness and the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. After that, you moved to Canada, why not, where you're currently the Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow for Canada, partnered with the University of Ottawa. You've got a really cool gig, too, focusing on Arctic security, pun absolutely intended.
3: Canada is a very cool country.
1: So, we're still in our our series on private national security law and how lawyers in the private sector work on national security issues. We'd love to chat with you today about the Arctic and how it's related to national security and what private national security lawyers might be thinking about in this space. So, first question, just to get oriented... What is the difference between the Arctic and the Antarctic, and why does the difference matter?
3: The basic difference between the two, obviously to the listeners, is that the Arctic is in the north and Antarctica is in the south. They're the opposite poles of the planet. But uh, the big legal distinction between the two is that Antarctica is a continental shelf, so it actually is a landmass that's covered in ice. And there is a treaty framework that covers Antarctica called the Antarctic Treaty from 1959. The Arctic, by contrast, is just water. The Arctic Ocean is covered by ice, and at this point, it's pretty difficult to navigate. But as that ice melts, the Convention on the Law of the Sea will cover the the ability of countries to navigate those oceans, creating a lot of new opportunities and a lot of new emerging legal issues.
2: I thought it melted last week. It's in progress. Every every week we see
3: news about continuing ice melt in the Arctic. Even on the day that we're recording this podcast, there was some new news out of NASA about the way that the summer ice melt is affecting the Arctic as opposed to the winter ice melt last week. So yeah, you're seeing it in the news every week.
2: All right. I'm trying not to freak out as I'm sitting here. Um, But help us understand what the various national security interests really are related to the Arctic.
3: Well, the biggest national security threat that we have in the Arctic comes from Russia. There's a lot of talk about the threat from Russia. Hey, Russia, these days. those people? Yes, okay. the people who are really visible from Alaska and right across the water from Alaska. When you think about going over the North Pole, we don't think about it as water right now because it's ice. But in the very near future, given climate change, we're going to see we're going to be able to actually navigate to Russia over the North Pole, which is sort of a scary thought. Um, it's, it's a
2: really scary thought.
3: Not only that, the Russians are incredibly good at operating in that environment. They have tons of infrastructure that's within the Arctic Circle. They have cities built up with tall buildings and roads and infrastructure and utilities in areas that we consider to be almost completely uninhabitable or where we might have a few indigenous peoples living, but nowhere near the level of buildup that they have in Russia. And even more important, perhaps for our concerns when we're talking about national security, is that they have got military bases up there. And they've, they've got basically military bases populating the entire coast of Russia as it borders with the Arctic Ocean. And we've got one or two ourselves, and the Canadians also have one or two, and the Danish and, and uh, Greenland also have one or two, but that's about it border on the other side of the Arctic Ocean. from Russia. I
0: did not hear that on the evening news last night. I was not aware of that. And we are going to include in the show notes a map of Russian buildup along the American and Canadian border if it helps you to visualize that better. And Lindsay, you mentioned a convention on the law of the sea, the UN convention on the law of the sea. Could you walk us a little bit through UNCLOS and other sovereignty claims in the area?
3: Sure. So really, the only treaty that's governing this area is UNCLOS. And the United States is not a signatory to UNCLOS. So when we talk about sovereignty claims and we talk about the geopolitics of the region, that's a really important thing to understand right off the bat. There are eight countries that have territorial claims in the Arctic. I'll list them for those who are interested. It's the United States, Canada, Russia, Finland, Sweden, Norway, Iceland, and Denmark. But there are really only five countries that border the Arctic Ocean. And so those littoral states, which are the United States, Canada, Russia, Norway, and Denmark, those are the ones that are going to be basically owning the land that's under the ocean in the Arctic. So when we talk about uh, the potential opportunities there, the territorial claims to what's under the ocean would belong to those five countries. Interestingly, the Arctic Council is the governing body for the Arctic, but it's very informal, and they exclude from their discussions explicitly anything having to do with security because it's too contentious. Um, But in the Arctic Council meetings, China and to some extent Japan, South Korea and Singapore, there are a lot of other countries who are trying to attend these meetings as observers, if not um, as active members. China actually sought to be an active member in the Arctic Council, which was very confusing to a lot of onlookers because there's no real claim (laughs) for China up in the (laughs) Arctic. But it is interesting that countries other than those that border the Arctic Ocean perceive the opportunities there to be enough that they want to be attending these meetings and have some sort of claim up there to what's under the ocean.
2: Can I just add one little thing here? At least three countries have actually staked a flag up there, have they not? Like, physically, literally done so. Us, Russia, and I believe Norway?
3: I I think it was the Danes, but yes. And the, the Russians famously took a sub and planted their flag on the North Pole itself. It created a lot of hubbub in 2008, I believe, when they did it, because most of what they were trying to do is actually uh, display a capability, right, that they can operate well in the Arctic and that they have the ability to actually stick a flag on the North Pole itself in the land underwater. And our but eyes are really wide. Yeah. Uh,
2: if yeah, you could see yeah. us. So <laughs> but there's, our, there's something under that flag, right?
3: There's the ocean floor, and there's a lot of resources in there.
2: That would be like the world's largest mm-hmm. oil reserves. <laughs>
3: yes, that's right. There's a, something like a quarter of the world's exploitable oil is suspected, oil, natural gas, and liquid natural gas is expected to be under the Arctic Ocean.
0: And when we talk about maneuvering in the Arctic, could you talk a little bit more about the icebreaker capability of some of these Arctic nations?
3: Um, yeah, so that is another reason to be concerned about how far ahead of us Russia is. Russia has a couple dozen, I think their icebreakers are in about the 40s these days. The United States arguably has two, and they're in pretty bad shape. And this year's NDA has actually one. In it, one heavy icebreaker, and the hope that is that it would stay in there. Uh, Can you
2: say NDA for our our national
3: defense authorization act? I'm sorry. So Um, that's the money. Congress Congress needs to actually create the ability for the U.S. military to build these boats through the National Defense Authorization Act, and this year. Uh, Enough people have been clamoring that as of right now, there is funding to create another icebreaker there, but whether it will stay there is a question for the future. Um, And an
0: icebreaker is a really highly specialized ship, so they cost a lot of money. They cost
3: a lot of money, and it's the only way to navigate right now Mm -hmm. through the Arctic. As the ice melts, there will be more opportunity for non-icebreaking ships to go through there. But if there are any issues with those ships, if there's a need for a search and rescue, or if there are any other complications with ships getting through that area, then an icebreaker would be required to come and help solve it. Interestingly, there are private icebreakers, and there are icebreakers that belong to research institutes, which I would also consider private insofar as they're not governmental, but they serve sort of a slightly different capability. Um, So the University of Alaska has an icebreaker. I don't count that among the American icebreakers. Shell, Exxon, some of the Mm -hmm. other resource extraction companies also have icebreakers. uh, But they are very expensive ships. And so so far we haven't transitioned into what industry might be doing up in the Arctic. But as far as governments go, Russia's got... Dozens, and we've got two, hopefully three, sometime in the future. And uh, China has one too, right? China has one called the Snow Dragon, and it's been spotted operating up <laughs> you in the knew Arctic. There'd be a dragon. <laughs> That's right. It's been spotted operating up in the Arctic, but they're, uh it's unclear what exactly they intend to be doing up there. So, what do you
1: see the future being with all of this activity going on in in this environment, and with the law being so un- uncertain?
3: The thing that happens with uncertainty is that ingenious people come up with opportunities. So I, if we look into the future and we look at the uncertainty of what the geopolitics of the region might look like with the ice melting, we have to also think about what opportunities might arise with the ice melting. And I can think of really three major categories of opportunity that will increase as the ice continues to melt and as technological improvements enable either countries or companies to take advantage of those opportunities. Um, So some of those technological improvements might be better building of icebreakers, but uh, hopefully we'll get an opportunity later in the podcast to talk about maybe some other technologies that could improve the ability to operate up in the Arctic as well. Um, So those three opportunities would be one, resource exploitation, which we've also already sort of hinted at. There is tons of oil, liquid natural gas, and natural gas up there. Right now, the cost of extracting it is prohibitive, and the cost of oil is so low that it's not really worth the exploitation. But if the cost of oil goes up, then we might see some more people up there operating.
2: Right. The whole fracking thing kind of falls apart. We might have to look elsewhere.
3: That's right. But fracking is an example of a new technology that enabled resource extraction in a different way that we hadn't contemplated before that. so. There, there might be the Arctic Fracking 2 technology that no one's thought about yet that might enable someone to access those stores of energy that we haven't been able to do quite yet. So the second opportunity would be uh, just shipping lanes. It's most uh, things that are traded back and forth among nations are shipped, and it's incredibly expensive to get through the Panama Canal or to get around South America and opening up more shipping uh, through what's called the Northwest Passage would be one way to get shipping around the Americas. And then over Russia is another way to get around Asia and Europe. Um, There are things called the Northwest and Northeast Passage and the Northern Sea Route that are all ways that potentially in the future could create uh, significantly cheaper means of getting goods from point A to point B. So that's another huge opportunity out there that we haven't quite seen realized because the cost of operating up there is still too much to have people really utilize that opportunity. But we have seen some commercial shipping go through. Since about 2009, there have been 1Z, 2Z boats going through some of those routes.
2: And the Chinese have uh, significantly expanded their role in the shipping sector recently. Um, And I know that they they have now created the world's largest, I believe, seafaring vessel. And have eclipsed all of the other companies we think of, like Maersk and some of those other ones, in terms of their size. So, that could be maybe perhaps some among their interests.
3: That's right. In if taking I,
2: a seat at the table.
3: If I had to guess what they're up to up there, a lot of it will have to do with just expanding their trade ability. And this is just a great way for them to access even more of the globe in terms of their trade reach. The last opportunity is infrastructure development. As we have more people operating up there, we're going to need more places for them to live and work. We're going to need communications. We're going to need roads to access the what the Canadians would call the north, and in Alaska what we would just call the Arctic portions of Alaska, I suppose. And so transportation, utilities, communication, basic infrastructure, such as buildings that can withstand the climate up there are going to all be needed in order to support float, the industry you know, floating, that's
0: up there. Well,
3: sure, there's oil rigs, <laughs> but you're basically going to need home ports for people to use as home bases as they're exploiting what's in the Arctic. Not everything can be shipbound. So that'll be another opportunity for people who are looking to exploit what's up in the Arctic.
0: Uh, so there's clearly a lot of really rapidly expanding opportunity and the potential for legal conflict to arise. So, what kinds of issues? Do you see a private national security lawyer uh, encountering in this new space?
3: Since I mentioned three areas of opportunity, I'll try to answer with each of those three areas of opportunity in mind because otherwise the issues are so varied. The Arctic is basically a law school exam question from hell. There's a smorgasbord of legal issues, and issue spotting is really going to be the biggest question for lawyers as, we, as their clients come to them and ask questions about operating potentially in the Arctic. So for a client that's talking about resource exploitation – Obviously, things like mining and drilling regulations will come into play, especially if you're talking about extracting resources that are within the territorial claims of the United States. When you start going into international waters, then we've got a whole nother slew of problems. Sovereignty issues are going to also come into play because, as I mentioned, some of those continental shelf claims haven't been resolved, and there will be more efforts to resolve them if the resources up there become more accessible. So we could see a lot more competing claims when it comes to that, so on behalf of your client, you may actually be starting to make sovereign, helping in the making of sovereignty claims. When we look at shipping, again, the Convention of the Law of the Sea becomes relevant. Both Russia and Canada make problematic claims to the Northwest and Northeast passages, so their claim under the Convention of the Law of the Sea is that these passages are internal waters to that country, which means that they own them and they can restrict traffic through them. The United States position, even though we're not signatories, is that they're both international straits, which means that we should have freedom of navigation to transit through them. The issue will be that we are not signatories to the treaty, so we have difficulty enforcing that position on our part, and therefore the effort will either be to ratify the convention, which many have said is unlikely anytime in the near future, or to lobby other countries to basically help us and take our position. Other issues with shipping will obviously include things like admiralty law and maritime law, which are their own really interesting but niche areas of private national security law that I think will be burgeoning areas of the law as more interesting legal issues come up with commercial shipping. Finally, infrastructure development will also bring up all sorts of interesting areas of the law. For example, in Alaska, you have indigenous communities living on Indian land. You have 61% of the state that's actually owned by the U.S. government, it's federal territory, and then the rest of Alaska is obviously governed by state law. So you're going to have conflicts of laws questions at the very least as you think about developing our ability to operate and work on the land of Alaska in order to be able to access some of the portions of the Arctic Ocean. In addition, things like transportation regulation, utilities, communications regulation, and other types of regulation about building up communities in the North will come into play. So folks from telecoms might useful in advising on helping to ensure that the communications are right so that as people operate up there, they can communicate with one another. That's just one example.
1: Um, So recently, the Trump administration
3: has signaled that they would be interested in opening up Arctic drilling up in Alaska. That's right. And that would be land-based drilling. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't affect any of the unclassed questions that I was talking about. But certainly, then you would have to think about creating home bases for those people who are drilling in that environment and the ability of people to live and operate there and all of the infrastructure that will be required for that. So, for example, in Canada, the folks who do the oil sands up in northern Alberta have tons of infrastructure that's been developed around just the ability to have workers come and drill for oil in that environment. And so you have entire communities of Canadians living in a part of Alberta that no one was living in say, 10 years ago before they started exploiting the oil sands. And you may have a similar oil rush to Alaska for people to exploit that resource if the drilling ends up happening.
0: Oil drilling is not a risk-free endeavor. I could definitely see a lot of liability issues coming up.
3: That's right. Liability is a huge overarching ish- legal issue that faces all three of these potential areas of opportunity. And I should add the caveat that these are just things that I predict might happen up there. Who knows what other opportunities up there that we haven't even thought about? So things like the competing sovereignty claims create some liability, but there's also just the potential for spills or for environmental disaster. And then the question would be who's responsible for the cleanup. There's a little bit of legislation that governs that right now, but certainly not enough and not enough that contemplates the Arctic melting in order to cover all the potential issues that come up with that. And then you even have just issues like personal injury or search and rescue And if the U.S. government or if some other government is needed to come in and help, there are actually statutes on the books that would require a private corporation to repay them for the cost of performing that search and rescue. So as you're advising your client about operating up there, the question is not just how much it costs, but how much could liability cost in the future.
2: All right, let's talk about some of the issues that have already come up with respect to drilling for oil up there, which seems to be what really a lot of countries are interested in, recognizing that we have a finite supply that is available to us in a non-frozen, more accessible way.
3: Yeah, so Shell went up there and actually in 2015, I believe, called off their exploration of the Arctic. But it was very controversial when they went up there. And I should add, while we're doing this podcast, that I share the environmental concerns of a lot of people about operating up in the Arctic. And I am by no means endorsing exploitation of the Arctic, I'm merely saying that my personal prediction is that this is where we're going. What, and I may be sad about it, and we, some of us may share that concern, but I do believe that it is something that will happen in the near future, that we will see more exploitation as the ice melts. So there were protesters when Shell originally took its icebreaker up there. Uh, some might remember protesters hanging from a bridge, pre- pre- preventing the, the icebreaker from actually getting up there, and Shell had to go to court to get an injunction. And there was also law enforcement involved in terms of pulling up these protesters. So there were some legal issues there, as well as just the political ramifications of doing something that could be potentially politically unpopular among your shareholders or even just in the American population writ large or globally. Shell went up. They looked at what it would cost to drill. And as I alluded to earlier in the podcast, It just wasn't worth the cost of operating there right now. The question was not that there wasn't any oil. The question was just about how much it costs to tap that oil right now and whether the cost-benefit analysis works out in their favor. And the answer was no for now. My thought and basically the thesis that I've been putting forth through this whole podcast is that, eventually, with the ice melt and with the improvement of technology, that cost-benefit analysis will likely come out differently at some point in the future.
2: Wow. I just want to say for my part, I'm a bike commuter. I don't want to feed into this madness. So, Lindsay,
1: this was super, super interesting, not widely discussed topic in national security, and we really appreciate you coming by. Thanks so much.
2: All right. Now we're going to hit you with a hypothetical. and We've talked about the ingenuity of people that sometimes leads to exploitation or changes, and while we're sitting here right now, somebody out there is giving this thought. And let's say I'm a young lawyer. I'm living in Mission in San Francisco. And some of the guys that I used to play beer pong with back at Berkeley now have a company that aggregates data, does some other things. And what what basically the product that they have, let's not call it one single algorithm, but they have something that consolidates data in such a way that very efficient exploitation of oil can occur. It can pinpoint where... You can get the most bang for your buck. It can drive down those costs that you've talked about. And my client wants to sell this, wants to unload it, sell it to a venture capitalist, and move on to the next great idea. What should I be thinking about? What should I be talking to my client about? How should I be thinking over that issue? So
3: basically what I'm hearing in your hypothetical is that when I say that the ice melt and technology will bring us to a point, some point in the future, when this becomes possible at low cost, you're saying, that's not in the future, Lindsay, that's today. Today. And what that means is that all of the questions that remain unresolved about sovereignty and about things like the ability of the U.S. government or any other government to get up there with an icebreaker capability to perform a search and rescue or to help someone should something bad happen... All of those unresolved questions about capability now come to the fore because you wanna go operate in an environment where nobody else has figured out how to support you. So the question would be, in terms of the technology, maybe there's not so much liability for the person who gives it to somebody else for them to go operate up in the Arctic, but there could be some transference there. The question would then be whoever wants to operate up in the Arctic, and if that person wanted to be a part of the operation up there, whether they would be well-poised to answer some of these questions about where are they gonna, the practical questions about where they're gonna get their communications from, whether they have the ability to send a ship up there and stuff like that once they've improved the technology to actually drill. And then with the drilling, the issue is going to be intellectual property protection and if everyone else figures out this technology as well, then you're gonna have multiple boats up there competing for the same resources. You're gonna have China up there for sure It depends on where you're drilling. Are you going to have Norway? Is this an area where Denmark and Norway have some sort of competing shelf claim? Is this an area where we, the United States, have a claim to that resource? And if that is true, then you're going to have all sorts of issues because we don't have a means to dispute the claim because we're not a signatory to the treaty. So basically, that's a scary proposition because of all the unresolved questions that we've raised about what it's like to operate up in the Arctic today.
0: And... Do you have any general advice for a young lawyer looking to get into private national security law?
3: I actually started my career at Arnold & Porter in their national security law practice group. And I would say that joining a national security law practice group is a wonderful way to understand the private national security law practice. The question of private national security law is really about practicing in existing markets and in other areas of law, but with an understanding about geopolitics and the U.S. regulatory environment and how those impact these other private transactions or potential cases and litigation's sake. So being a nerd and listening to podcasts like this and also reading the news and being up to date on what is going on geopolitically will help young lawyers issue spot for clients and understand where there's uncertainty and I've tried to make the case here where there's uncertainty there's actually a lot of opportunity. there might be some risk involved and that's where having really in-depth understanding about the nuance and what the challenges look like is going to help your client and your bosses do better in the future.
1: We also get a lot of questions um, just on the same theme of what what's a young lawyer to do we get a lot of. Questions about work-life balance. Um, we are a podcast of five women in this uh, in this studio today, including um, one
2: intern who's saying nothing right now, which is yes, just fine. But mm-hmm.
1: I will include her. She is a person, right? A legally, <laughs> recognized person. But um, we get a lot of questions about work-life balance especially entering this really rigorous field as you've laid it out for us can you talk a little bit about your own experience with balancing your professional
3: pursuits with your uh, with my ever-growing family with your family so what that's alluding to is that I have a little baby baby <laughs> <laughs>
1: so cute sorry cute. she's I'm editorializing but On behalf of Proud Mama, he is a cute dumpling. Oh, my God.
3: Okay. (laughs) Yvette has actually seen my baby, so I'm happy (laughs) that she can say that. Uh, He is eight months old. And it was a big question for me about how to balance a national security law career with starting a young family. I was really fortunate that I got this fellowship with the Council on Foreign Relations. I had to move to Canada because my husband's job took him there, and this is a wonderful opportunity not just to be able to dig deep into these incredibly interesting issues, but also to have a little bit more flexible of a work schedule during this period of transition in our lives as we venture off into the adventures of young parents. Um, So that's been a really cool opportunity. I'm also a Marine Corps Reservist. So I'm mindful about making sure that my schedule accommodates not just my work for CFR, but continuing to serve the country as a Marine. And I'm grateful to the Marine Corps Reserves that they're actually a pretty flexible way to continue to to be able to put on the uniform and spend time with my young baby and my husband in Canada. Indeed, we are able to
1: have you here in our podcast studio in D.C. because you were drilling at the Pentagon this week. That's correct. Shout out to Judge Advocate Division, Headquarters Marine Corps. Boom shakalaka. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We would definitely love to have you back during our series on public national security law. But for now, we're going to let you get home
2: to that adorable little dumpling. He's so cute. Thank you. I really
3: look forward to coming back.
2: Let me add one thing here for our listeners who might be interested in something that Lindsay's alluded to and sort of addressed, I guess, a bit directly at the beginning of the podcast and that is the national security implications of any climate change, such as would cause uh, some melting of polar ice caps and so on. There is a documentary, it's called Extreme Realities, I believe it was on PBS, and it's produced by local filmmakers Hal and Marilyn Wiener. You should take a look at that. Uh, You will find a lot of military leaders being interviewed during that cast to discuss this very issue. It might be of interest to some of you.
3: And I should also add that in my work with the Council on Foreign Relations on Arctic security issues, I will be living in Canada and trying to study these issues from a Canadian perspective, but I would love to hear from any listeners who also want to collaborate on some work on these questions, because I think it's just an area ripe for exploration and it has not been thoroughly studied enough.
0: And be sure to look in the podcast notes for more information on Lindsay's work. So thank you
1: for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security at the ABA. Tune in again for our next episode.
2: So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff where you have no access to
0: the device you're using to listen to us right now. And you're certain you need less sun than other people to maintain a healthy amount of vitamin D. And, of course, if you get claustrophobic in a secure area or you really do need a lot of vitamin D, so you'd rather practice private national security law.
1: But you still want to practice the kind of law that gives you a courtside seat to history, a courtside seat to watch a game you can talk about with your in-laws.
2: Then join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We hope to see you at our next conference. And everybody out there, remember something very important. Listening to a podcast is very informative, and we're really glad to have you here. But social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts, lunches, or conferences. Find out more at AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. And don't forget that every serious national security lawyer has one great book on their desk, the 2017 U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, available for purchase on our website. And let me add, fittingly, there is a new ABA book that will be out shortly, which deals with public-private partnerships to promote resiliency and continuity of critical infrastructure it's going to be available soon, and I think it's going to be very important.
1: And you should also check out Lindsay Rodman's article in Careers in National Security Law, also available for sale on our website. From all of us here, thank you so much for listening,
0: and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the black letter laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec.